so uh, Mick West back on the JV podcast. A pleasure as always. Hi Jay, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, man. Obviously, uh, been enjoying the the sunny weather here and also the crazy storms we've been having over in England. How's everything over your end? It's been a bit hot. Summer has finally arrived. It actually <laughs> rained a couple of days ago. It normally never rains at this time of year. It's a bit strange. The weather's been a bit odd this year, but it's nice. Having yeah. fun. No, I mean, appreciate you coming back on uh, for the third time. Obviously, last time I had yeah. you on, you uh, debated um, Tony Zambotti, which was interesting. That was fun. Yeah, I got a lot of um, a lot of comments on that video, obviously, thanks to uh, Joe retweeting it as well, um, which exposed the video quite a lot. And then a load of people threw in shill comments, and then other... <laughs> Other people were like, Mick was always talking over Tony. Then other people were like, Tony was always talking over Mick. And I was just kind of like, okay, I'm just going to leave this to everyone else. <laughs> no point trying well, to respond. Yeah. I think it, it, we both got like quite a lot of words in there. So I think it was it was, it was was pretty good exchange of, uh, of views. I'm not sure if we convinced anybody, but uh, uh, I think it's always good to have dialogue with people. It's better to actually try to... Uh, anyway, at least understand where the other person is coming from. So you know, I like I like talking to Tony, even though like I do disagree with the way he interprets certain things. Uh, but I think you know the more discussions we can have, uh, the closer we're all going to come to some kind of understanding of what actually happened. Yeah, I think that's important. And obviously, I know you've got your um, book coming out, which is called Escaping the Rabbit Hole. I do, um, and in fact, I just got uh, paper copies of it today. These are the uh, advanced reader copies. Uh, which uh, are not perfect, but they're you know the ones that we send out to reviewers and people that we want to uh, have a look at the book before it comes out. So that's quite exciting. I just uh, you know spent like six months or so working on the book, and uh, it's finally uh, getting to the stage where it's actually a real book now. Um, what inspired you to to kind of um, start writing that book? Because obviously I know you've done a lot of debunking stuff, and yeah. The market's well, quite. You know, uh, I was just going to say the market's quite saturated with like conspiracy books out there, you know, like nine eleven and all that stuff. And there's not really so much to say a market which is kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum um, that I've seen, like that's well published or well known. They're all kind of YouTube videos or whatever. So, mm-hmm. what kind of motivated you to get that going? Well, you know, I, I write on Metabunk, uh, and I I write a lot on Metabunk. I actually added up one day like all the words I'd written on Metabunk and it came to be something like, you know, over a million words because I've been writing on Metabunk, you know, every week for uh, for many years and it, it all adds up. And I thought like, you know, the stuff I'm writing, there's some useful stuff in there, but it's all spread out all over the site. And what I wanted to do was kind of uh, distill the stuff that I've learned over the years uh, into a useful format of a book. So someone can just like take it, read through the the core stuff, and you know get something out of it. And you know, there's so much stuff on Metabank I couldn't really just you know shoehorn everything into there. So I, I tried to focus on uh, one key aspect, which is how do people get into the rabbit hole and how do they get out? Which is kind of two aspects, but it's really it's about the journey of people who get caught up in conspiracy theories and how did they how did that happen? And how did they find their way out if they did? You know, of course, a lot of people uh, never find their way out. And it, people people 
go down the rabbit hole in very different ways and they go down different rabbit holes and there's you know some rabbit holes are more extreme than others uh you can look at some conspiracy theories like for example the jfk conspiracy theories and you could see like perhaps there might be like, some fairly reasonable uh, things going on there in terms of like you know theories that people might wonder about maybe maybe lee harvey oswald was working for the russians uh, that's a possible conspiracy theory. You know, maybe he was uh, working with the mob. Yeah, but then you start getting a little bit further along, and they become less and less likely. You know, was you know some people think that the driver of the car turned around and shot JFK. So you know, there are, there are these spectrums of conspiracy theories. Um, so I think you know even people who believe in conspiracy theories could get something out of the book because. Everybody has some conspiracy theories that they don't believe in. And everyone knows someone who believes in some conspiracy theory that they personally don't believe in. So even if you believe in JFK or even if you believe in you know, some of the 9-11 conspiracy theories, uh, or even if you believe in chemtrails, there's, there's often someone still who's you know, more extreme further along on the spectrum who could benefit from you know, the advice that I have in the book, how do you talk to people? You know, how do you understand where they're coming from? And how do you help them, you know, come to a, a clearer perspective about what's actually going on in the world? Yeah, I mean, with um, sort of even people that I know, like I draw the line. I mean, I, I'm into a conspiracy here and there. And uh, like the yeah. Madeleine McCann case, there's like conspiracies around that. And they kind of interest me. Um, and I draw the line sort of when people start telling me like the earth's flat or whatever. Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and some people, you know, they're avid followers. I think, I mean, on, um, this morning in England, um, it's like a sort of show with Philip Schofield and that they had three people on there that believed the, the earth was flat and were saying, right. um, we've done these tests across this lake. There's no curve and, Mm-hmm. Um, you know the photos from NASA are CGI and whatever you know just just all the kind of generics and obviously Philip Schofield was like well I was one of those people that was lucky enough to fly on Concorde um, 60,000 feet in the air whatever I think it's something like that and he's like I've seen the curve of the yeah. earth so am I in there with with the society like um, who's they, they would line? probably say yes yeah well one of them yeah. replied with apparently um, scientists say that you have to be above 60,000 feet in the air to um, even see the curvature of the earth and I think it's one of those things that maybe a lot of because there's a lot of misinformation out there uh-huh. a lot of different scientists opinions and things like that um, but what's your take on on the flat earth theory and sort of I know you've spoke about it till you're blue in the face but say the height that you'd have to be to see the curvature yeah that's that's actually a very interesting uh, a very interesting little problem of science like how high do you have to be to see the curve of the earth because uh, there's two things at play like one is like the higher that the higher you get uh, above the earth like the more curved it's going to look but the higher you get the more the further away the horizon becomes so as you get higher and higher the horizon gets further and further away so when you're at sea level you're like about you know you're standing on the beach you're only like six feet above the water then the horizon is relatively close, depending on you know how much you crouch or stand up or whatever. It could be anything from like like three to like twenty miles or so, but it's still relatively close, so you can see a sharp line. Uh, now, if you go up in a plane to like thirty thousand feet and you look out, you'll see the horizon looks really, really um, indistinct and blurry because you're looking through loads and loads of atmosphere. You're looking through like two hundred miles 
of uh, of atmosphere to see the horizon. So you can't really see it very clearly. So it turns out there's actually there's there's kind of two areas where you can see uh, the curve of the horizon. You know, one of them is kind of getting above forty thousand feet. You can kind of start to see it through uh, the, the atmosphere because the atmosphere itself kind of becomes curved uh, at that point, like visibly curved, and you can see the top of the atmosphere curving. Uh, if you get above like forty-five, I mean, up to sixty thousand feet, you can definitely see it from up there. But you can also see it at a much lower altitude of about uh, five hundred feet, which sounds like ridiculous. Mm. Yeah, you know, most people I tell them this, like you know, you get five hundred feet. If you can't see it at 30,000 feet, how can you see it from 500 feet? Yeah. But the reason you can see it is that when you're at 500 feet, it's like a sweet spot where there's not that much a distance between you and the, the horizon. Uh, so it's just enough so you can see it clearly. You can see a very, very sharp line. And so if you get a, a straight edge, uh, like a ruler or something, and you just hold it up, uh, you have to get a pretty long one, one that's about like four, four or five feet. If you hold that up against the horizon, you can actually see... It's a little bit higher in the middle, a little bit lower at either end. So if you go to like 500 feet, you can actually do this experiment. It works best if you take a, take a picture with a camera, but you can actually see it with, with your eyes. If you take a ruler up to about 500 feet and you've got a nice clear day and you've got a nice wide view of the horizon. Uh, but if you go higher than that, you won't be able to see it because it becomes too blurry. So it, it only works at this one height. And uh, you know, everyone argues, like, can you see it from 30,000 feet? Well, I mean, you could if there wasn't any atmosphere, but there is, so it's all blurry. Mm. Um, no one can get to, like, 45,000 feet, generally, unless you've got a private jet. <laughs> um, so, but you can actually do this at 500 feet, so you can go find a cliff somewhere and uh, look at the curve of the Earth. Yeah, and if you're a real flat earther, maybe just jump off and see what happens. <laughs> you know, gravity <laughs> well, might just... Well, they don't believe in gravity. Yeah, yeah I, but, mean, uh, I mean, gravity's um, the sort of the one of the fundamental arguments and i always say to people in my opinion they're quarreling over the name of it like oh we don't know it we don't know we've never like been able to really test it we don't mm -hmm. know it's there but you know you throw something in the air and it comes back to the ground the the water's held to the air uh, earth blah 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 yeah. and i always say to people you're kind of quarreling over the name like whether it's called gravity yeah. or chocolate like it doesn't matter that's what's happening like you're seeing the effect happen whether it's gravity whether you call it whatever you want you're still kind of seeing that effect happen and science has obviously said this is what it's called this is why it happens because exactly blah, blah, blah. yeah but people seem to kind of go gravity doesn't exist prove it blah 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 or when someone's dropped a ball in a, a glass of water, the like water doesn't shape around the ball. And I'm like, well, it's obviously to do with some some sort of, uh, I'm obviously not a scientist or anything, but it's obviously to do with some sort of physics and density and whatever else like of the ball. And well, it's because the earth is pulling the water off. <laughs> you know, yeah. the, the earth is uh, a big ball in space. So if you've got a big ball in space and you tried that, you know, you'd have the same effect as the Earth. But if you've got like a tiny ball on the Earth, it's a, a completely different situation. But that, you know, the example with gravity is a great one because that's another thing. It's something I like, really encourage people to do in the book. Like one of the, uh, the key techniques is don't just explain things to people. Like try to figure out some way of, of showing things to people or tell them a way they can go and test it for themselves. Like that thing with the horizon is a good example. And with gravity, there's uh, another thing you can do. You can take a very small scale, uh, like a little jewelry measuring scale. You can get for about $10 on, on Amazon. 
probably less, probably the same in the UK. And you can get a weight and you can weigh it at sea level or just wherever you happen to live. Then you can get in your car and you can drive up a mountain, like drive up like 2,000 feet. Might be a bit hard in England because you don't have any high mountains. Hmm. But uh, around here, it's quite easy. You can get in your car and you can drive 6,000 feet up. And then you can weigh the, weigh the weight again. And you'll find it's a little bit lighter because uh, you're further away from uh, the center of the Earth. So you're actually proving that gravity is a force that depends on the distance. Mm. And you know it's not a density thing because when you go higher up, the air is less dense. So if it was density, the the weight would actually weigh more because it's, it's even more dense relative to the Earth. So you're proving that it's not density and you're proving it's like a force, like you say, that's uh, proportional to the distance from the Earth. So you can, you can actually do all these things to you know, confirm what the scientists have been telling you. I mean, it's the same with like um, going into a submarine, I guess, and going so close, like the lowest, the lower you go, the more the pool becomes um, a problem. I mean, I had a, an old school teacher who used to be uh, work for the Marines or whatever, and he was in a submarine for ages, like, and he'd said that he f he was obviously in low water, and he said he definitely thinks that's what made him shrink because he's, he's <laughs> tiny. But obviously, you know, the, these are these are things that happen. I mean, another argument people seem to use is that um, they get that like P ninety X whatever special camera with the lens, and they zoom in right. at boats. And yeah, obviously, I've got those. Yeah, somewhere. And they say, oh, we can still, you know, your eye can't see it anymore because apparently your eye's shown it's going over the horizon. So let's zoom uh -huh. in even further um, with this lens, and obviously then you can see the full boat, which I have seen a few videos like that. Um, and they try and use that as sort of their one of their smoking guns of like, well, yeah, it's it's ridiculous because uh, when you're zooming in, all it does is it makes the picture bigger. Mm. So if you took like the image uh, with it zoomed out and the image with it zoomed in, you know, the reason you can't see it is that the boat is less than one pixel on screen. It's just this tiny little thing that you can't even see. So uh, if you take that picture and you, you magnify it, you're not going to see anything because there's some pixels there. But if you zoom in like just enough so you can start to see it, then you'll see that the image there is exactly the same as the one when you zoom in. It doesn't change. Yeah. When you zoom in on something, it doesn't make things rise up over the horizon. And this is the type of thing people have known for, you know, the world have been known since they invented telescopes because they, they, could, they could see these things. Uh, it, and it's, it's quite bizarre because like, people... People want to believe in their theories, so they kind of convince themselves that this is what's going on. Like with the zooming in on things, uh, they convince themselves that something's rising up over the horizon, but it's not. If you actually look at it carefully, you'll see that it's just simply getting bigger. It's coming from a point. It's getting bigger. It's not. There's no more or less of it being uh, uh, observed. You just uh, you're just magnifying things. And these are, again, these are things you can verify yourself. You can try it on a small scale. Uh, you can, you know, stick something on a table and zoom in and out, or uh, like uh, you know, on a, a football field. And the thing is, though, that uh, they do this sometimes, and they they see things appear to disappear behind a football field. Like you know, someone will walk down a football field, and they'll see his his feet disappear. But that's happening because the football field has a crown in the middle. So, so the water runs off it mm. and yet they, they say it's flat and then they say oh this is happening because of perspective and this football field is flat and in fact no they're just actually showing exactly the same thing that happens 
you know, on the globe, uh, Earth, and they uh, they're just kind of missing a bit of information. So, talk to me about um, obviously in your book, you've got a part where you talk about the shield card. Um, what have you gone through, like personally, and what have you written about in your book? Because obviously, I know a lot of people are like Mick West; he's a shield, yeah, sell out. Um, what's your sort of take on all of that? Well, you know, the shield card chapter of my book is basically where I tell my story about, you know, where I come from and, uh, you know, why I do what I do, uh, how I can afford to do what I do and, uh, why I think it's important to do what I do. And the reason I wrote a whole chapter explaining all of that is that people will say that I'm a government shill. They'll say that I'm being paid to do this. And, uh, they don't ever present any evidence that I'm being paid or that, you know, I'm a government shill or whatever. The only reason that they're saying this is that they disagree with me or rather that I disagree with them. And they can't understand why someone would disagree with them because from their point of view, it seems very obvious. Uh, if you're a 9-11 truth believer who believes in the controlled demolition theory, those uh, individuals are very um, deeply committed to that belief. Like they, they believe very, very strongly that it's obvious that it must have been explosions. They'll say, can't you see the explosions? I mean, I mean, you might think the same thing yourself about some of the 9-11 uh, the uh, collapses. It seems obvious. So they, they, they don't understand why I can't see what they're seeing. And so they make the leap that I must be a government shill. But... The reason I'm disagreeing with them is that I think that they are wrong. It's not because I'm being paid. It's because I think they are, being, they are incorrect. And I, uh, I think it's important that people, you know, that tr the true version of the events should come out uh, as much as possible. I think if people are believing these false versions of events, then it's not good for a start. It's not good for them because they're going to have these weird beliefs that kind of isolate them from society because uh, everyone thinks that they're they're crazy tinfoil hatters is what people are going to call them and i don't think it's good for society to have uh, these false beliefs be prevalent amongst large sections of the of the population now you might say like you know well what's the harm of people believing in things why shouldn't people believe whatever they want i mean yeah sure yeah people can believe whatever they want you can believe in religion and things like that um but people here are believing in things that are demonstrably wrong. I'm not trying to force people to not believe these things. I'm just showing them some information that they might be missing that will help them come to a more uh, reasonable understanding of what happened. Like with the, uh, say, the 9-11 attacks, uh, one of the pieces of evidence that people put out there is that after the 9-11 attacks uh, in the dust, they found these things called iron microspheres, which are very, very small iron balls, essentially. And they say the only way these iron microspheres could have formed is uh, during very, very hot temperatures of, of steel, basically steel melting and vaporizing and then reforming in little spheres. And the only thing that could do that, they say, is thermite. So they will say that the uh, presence of these iron microspheres is proof that the buildings must have been uh, demolished 
And people accept that because it sounds reasonable. You know, it sounds, you know, how else could these iron spheres have got there? It's not iron spheres aren't something that's very common to find. Obviously, like it was very, very hot and uh, jet fuel only burns at whatever, 1600 degrees. And it couldn't have made these iron spheres. So people accept that as evidence. But uh, what I would do is try to show them evidence that they're missing. I, I would show them that there are actually many, many ways of making iron microspheres. Uh, the simplest way is to use a cigarette lighter. Uh, if you've got just a standard cigarette lighter, which you know it's got sparks and gas, you do the little thing. The flint uh, rubs against uh, steel, makes some sparks, and those sparks that you see on a cigarette lighter are actually iron microspheres. You can actually take your lighter, take a magnet, put it behind like a bit of paper or something, and just like spark it a few times. And you'll get like a little black, uh, little black ring or a little black square around your magnet on the paper. And you can take that black dust and you can look at it under a microscope and you'll see these tiny little spheres of iron just from you know, just a few strikes of, uh, of, your, of, your, of your lighter. Uh, and you know, that's you know, obviously like there's not lots of lighters going off you know, during the World Trade Center collapse. But that's just you know, one example of a way that they can be made that people might not be aware of. They might think that, oh, the only way you can make these things is from uh, from thermite. I mean, then another really sorry, another just, really yeah. yeah so, go ahead. <laughs> now I was just going to say about that as well. Like obviously you have got concrete rubbing against uh, steel uh -huh. beams as it's collapsing and other materials, you do. yeah, um, sparks from electrical equipment or whatever, which could obviously cause um, you know the same thing. And obviously when I had uh, Richard Gage on, he spoke a lot about um, thermite being used, and that was kind of one of his. Uh, key points is like this was found all over um, so therefore it must must prove to be thermite yeah no that's 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 the thing like you get this this evidence of that gets repeated all over and over again people say like we find these iron microspheres uh, and you know they they because people aren't given the the full context they aren't given the additional information uh, they they accept that as evidence now one of the biggest uh, sources of iron microspheres is uh, arc welding. You know, when they, uh, they're welding things with electricity and you get this really bright light and you get sparks flying everywhere. Uh, those sparks, again, are iron microspheres. And uh, when the towers were constructed, there was, a, there was a huge amount of arc welding going on. The columns themselves were basically put one on top of the other and a lot of the lower columns had this really deep groove that went all the way around the column it's about an inch or two deep and then they used arc welding basically to fill that in just by going back and forth over this uh, these these deep grooves so there were sparks flying over and over like millions and millions of sparks like being generated like for hours and hours for days and days end on end and all those those spheres they end up inside the building it's just dust you know some of them are going to like you know brush it away but because it's a construction site you know, there's just dust everywhere. And then when they uh, put down the concrete to make the floors, all the dust or whatever that's on there just gets like trapped in there. Uh, and then when the building collapses, it's all freed up. Uh, and these spheres, you know, they can last in there indefinitely because they're essentially indoors at that point. So they're not exposed to the elements. So they're not going to rust or disappear. Um, so it's actually an expected thing to find loads and loads of iron microspheres. I actually made a bunch of them myself. I got like... Uh, some iron microspheres that I made 
in this uh, this little thing here. They come in all different sizes. Some of them are very very small, and some of them are about about a, about a millimeter is about the biggest one. But it's really easy to make them with uh, arc welding. I just like went and I just did a little bit of welding. And you can imagine the amount of welding that actually went on in the World Trade Center must have been just you know, quite staggering. So it's hardly surprising that there were iron microspheres in the in the rubble. You do a bit of um, sort of debunking on your uh, on your own YouTube channel as well. I mean, I saw a video with like column blocks, um, and you were sort of showing the metal rods bending and things like that. Um, yeah, talk to me sort of about that experiment and and things that other things you've sort of done on your channel as well. Yeah, and that's like, um, yeah, there's the famous thing, jet fuel can't melt, melt steel beams. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of versions of misunderstanding of that. Uh, but a lot of people still don't really understand just how much heat can weaken something like a, a steel beam. So I did a bunch of experiments just using a butane torch, which uh, burns at a similar temperature to uh, just regular hydrocarbon, you know, like, you know, whatever, paper and wood and uh, jet fuel. Uh, they all burn at kind of similar temperatures. And I I, I took a, a steel bar and then just supported it between two blocks and then just heated it. And you see that the, the bar pretty rapidly starts to just sag and uh, uh, and bend. And it's not melting. It's just, it's just bending because it's getting weaker. Um, I also did an experiment where I, I made my own thermite uh, which is a fun experiment. I would recommend anybody do it. Uh, it's a little dangerous. It's a little dangerous making your own thermite. Well, making it isn't dangerous because it's, it's, it's actually pretty stable. It's hard to light it. But uh, it, once you burn it, it's, uh, it's hard to stop it. Uh, I used it. Here's a uh, steel steel column analog that I use, like the, the equivalent of a steel column. And I actually burnt through it with thermite. And you can see this slag coming off the sides. And you can see this uh, this white dust right here. And it's dark here, and it's white dust here. And there's a whole bunch of little microspheres on the side of this column. And it's pretty interesting that thermite actually has a kind of microsphere signature. If you look very closely at these, uh, these microspheres, which obviously we can't do over the internet, you'll see that uh, they actually, there's two types of spheres. There's white ones and there's gray ones. The gray ones are iron, and the white ones are aluminum oxide, because I use aluminum thermite, aluminum oxide, as you call it in England. Uh, and what happens with these little microspheres is they, they very often combine together, and you get like kind of a big white one with a smaller black one inside it, and it looks just like an eyeball. So it looks like you've got all these tiny little microscopic eyeballs littering the surface of this uh, this piece of steel, and that's kind of a signature of thermite. And these eyeball microspheres are something that no one has ever reported seeing in the World Trade Center site, which kind of indicates to me that it wasn't thermite, because if the, if it was thermite, you would be seeing these eyeball microspheres, like made out of the uh, the oxide and the uh, the metal itself. So you know, that was, a, that was kind of a fun little result that I wasn't expecting. I was just trying to see. You know, how many microspheres you get from thermite uh, and it was obviously fun blowing things up but uh, it was an interesting result and I think it could be quite significant yeah I mean I think um, with a lot of sort of people who, who follow conspiracies they'll kind of pick and choose what they 
want to believe. So, for example, someone would say, yeah, Thermite was used because this is there, but then they're also not reporting or giving you the honest truth because a certain element that's also linked to Thermite when you use Thermite wasn't found or there was no, no signs of it. And it's kind of like you can't... You're doing you're being dishonest to people when you're mm-hmm. not reporting the whole spectrum. You know, like you, you can't... People want you to follow their what you believe, but yeah you need to kind of be more open and honest and be like, yeah, okay, like we believe it's Fermite, but um, it might not be because we haven't found any of this substance, but this is the closest thing we can see to to why Fermite could be used. If you get what I mean with, with what I I'm do, saying. yeah. I, yeah, and I think, I think part of that comes from uh, people not exactly trying to figure out what happened, but really trying to like only look for evidence for one thing. Mm. So they're only looking for the evidence that uh, thermite was used. They're not looking for evidence that thermite was not used. So it wouldn't even occur to them to you know remark upon the absence of these aluminum oxide microspheres because from their point of view that's you know not a good thing to <laughs> to notice. Uh, so that the, you know they're trying to trying to make a case rather than uh, figure out what's going on. And I think you know that's something that probably like everyone is guilty of to a, a degree. You get this uh, confirmation bias, where if you find something that confirms what you think, you tend to really focus on that one thing. But yes, being selective is definitely a problem. I think within the 9/11 Truth community, uh, a good example is uh, uh, there is there was a, a Dutch demolition expert called Danny Juenko. And he was asked by a uh, TV documentary film crew to look at uh, the the film Loose Change, Mm. uh, which uh, shows uh, the collapses of uh, the the Twin Towers and of World Trade Center Building 7. And uh, if you look on the Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth website, they say that one of the main pieces of evidence, I think it's like number seven of their, their list of 10, is that uh, the top demolition expert in Europe uh, said that Building 7 was a controlled demolition. And, you know, that's, and, and they're basing it on Danny Juenko uh, looking at this uh, Building 7 thing from, from Blue's Change. He was only seeing it for the first time. But anyway, you know, he looked at it and he said, oh, yeah, that's obviously a controlled demolition. And this is how they would have done it. And, you know, that's, pretty compelling evidence really you know if you got the the top demolition expert in europe saying it was a controlled demolition then that seems like very uh, very good evidence however the the selectiveness comes in there in that in the same documentary uh about five or ten minutes earlier they'd shown him pictures a video of world trade center one and world trade center two collapsing and he said, that's obviously not a controlled demolition. He said, there's no way it could possibly be a controlled demolition. They wouldn't have time to do it. Like The, the fires would have uh, set off the explosives. Uh, it looks like it's collapsing naturally because from what he can see, that's just what would happen when the building would collapse. Uh, it's gravity that's driving the collapse. And uh, you know, there's no way they could do it without leaving any evidence. So he gave his expert opinion. So now we've got the top demolition expert in Europe saying that uh, 9-11, uh, towers collapse, were not a controlled demolition, but Building 7 was. So architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth, they only used the second one. They only used the World Trade Center 7. 
Uh, and they don't use the fact that he said the exact opposite thing about the other buildings, which they also think were controlled demolitions. So they're being very selective, which I think is uh, rather mm, a bit dodgy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think for if I mean, I'm a rational person, I think for every if you're going to provide information on something, you need to provide both sides or at least quote someone fully on what they're saying i mean it's like me editing this video at the uh, um and at the start we've said oh the jfk some of the conspiracies could be quite reasonable and i just use that section and i'm like mick west agrees with the conspiracy theory jfk you know it's it's kind of like dishonest and uh yeah. cl clickbaity and, and whatever whatever else is involved i mean uh still obviously going on about um 9 11 the the only other sort of things i found is like the issues with um the commission report because i watched um i can't remember his name he, guy is an italian guy but he did a documentary on the, and it's called the new pearl harbor and anyone can find it obviously on youtube and uh he just basically shows that there's issues with um the timings of certain situations uh where say dick cheney was in a room with um one of the guys um and then yeah. he said he he didn't arrive there until nine fifty when and the stand down order was given at nine thirty five and you know there's there's little bits and bobs uh, that it, the commission report sort of uh, falls maybe flat on and you've had guys stand up and um, in front of the congress or whatever and say that um, a young guy asked if the order still stood and the <coughs> the vice president said of course the order still stands and that's kind of a lot of what people yeah. uses but. There are a lot of other they things. They do, but there. they never say what that order actually was. Yeah. Uh, they, they're making assumptions there, you know, that it was what it was it an order to shoot down the planes or was it an order to do something else? I mean, like, if it's an order to shoot down the planes, like, why why are they doing that if they're in on the conspiracy? Mm. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, um, obviously, as well, like, one of the, I think the plane that came to towards the Pentagon, um, the, the one that hit the Pentagon in the end. Uh -huh. uh, it was heading towards the White House at one point and it actually enters, um, they show in the documentary, they show this graph of like red circle spaces around the White House and if anything enters that area, it's like a no-fly zone, it'll be shot down and um, it never gets shot down and then obviously it just turns and veers towards the Pentagon or whatever. I'm sure it's something like that. I may be com yeah. completely No, wrong. it's, it's it, the thing about things like that is that, uh, you know, again, they don't give you all the information uh the pentagon is right next to a busy airport mm. so there's planes flying around there all the time and they're not going to just like the instant a plane flies into the airspace shoot it down i don't think they even have things like you know missiles and things at the pentagon uh they if there was some kind of threat they would rely on uh fighter jets like taking it down this was you know something that they had not anticipated mm. uh but uh, the I, these no-fly zones, the uh, military no-fly zones. If you fly into one, and this happens all the time, even now, uh, planes will fly by accident into no-fly zones. Then, you know, you'll get contacted first by air traffic control, and if they can't contact you, then they will send up a jet to intercept you, and the jet will like, you know, fly in front of you and waggle its wings, and then you'll you'll go oh shit, and then you'll follow it. <laughs> uh, and that that happens all the time. You, you no one's ever been shot down. Uh, the, the U.S. has never shot down uh, a civilian plane for accidentally going into to air, into military airspace. 
it just doesn't happen. They send up a jet and they follow them, and then yeah, it generally takes care of it. And if it's a hijack situation, yeah, they're only going to do it if it if it poses a risk. And now, like you know, hijacks really don't happen because we have all these new security things in place. And before 9/11, all the hijacks were basically people taking over the plane and flying it somewhere. So everything changed after 9/11. So we never got the chance to actually, you know, shoot things down because it doesn't happen anymore. I suppose also there's a it's kind of that chaos as well that was going on. You know, oh, yeah, people, absolutely. People, yeah, people yeah. are focused on other things and not realising this is going on or whatever. So there, there definitely could have been, of, uh, there could have been yeah. um, mistakes made. I mean, I watched that documentary. Mistakes definitely were ago. made. Definitely, yes. Uh, and one of the things about, you know, people talk about, was there a cover-up? Uh, and it might be that some things were covered up because it's like, you know, it's it's like... People don't want to take responsibility or they want to you know, protect people who they think uh, were just doing their job uh, but made a mistake. Like, you know, the, there was a couple of uh, fighter jets sent up to intercept. Uh, well, not even to intercept. I don't know exactly what they were sent up. But, you know, the orders weren't given precisely. So the jets were sent up in the air and they just went to their standard rendezvous point, And that was in the opposite direction from where they were supposed to go. And you can hear the actual... Uh, discussion of this online like uh, some guy says where are the jets and the, the other guy says oh they're at like point alpha and says what the fuck are they doing over there they should be a, you know over in washington and then it says i don't care if they break any windows on the way get them over here and mm. it, by that time it was too late because they just they just messed up uh, and, and uh, you know obviously things like that are going to happen in a, a chaotic situation that no one's ever experienced before you know plane flies into the world trade center we almost get used to it now because we 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 think about it so often if you're interested in conspiracy theories but yeah, i was just you know it was like mind-blowing at the yeah. time uh and even people who you know experienced military people it was just you know beyond their comprehension as to what was actually going on at the time so it's perfectly understandable that people mess things up on that day so why do you think people cling on to conspiracy theories and how do you think they sort of fall deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole do you think like YouTube and stuff like that's got a... Yeah, I do. Uh, in fact, I started out when I was writing the book, Escaping the Rabbit Hole. Uh, I was going to do a, a long section on uh, the psychological reasons behind why people fall for conspiracy theories. And there's actually quite a bit of research on this. Like people will do research to try to correlate two things. They say if a person you know, tends to, you know, be uh, distrustful of authority, then does that make him a conspiracy theorist later on in life? And they just do surveys and they figure out, like, you know, this thing uh, leads to conspiracies and this thing doesn't. Uh, uh, one thing they, that is very common is uh, a need for uniqueness. There's a way of measuring how much a person uh, wants to be unique. They just, and, and they just figure this out by little survey questions they say like you know, do you do you feel like you get your information yourself or you have it given to you like mm. uh, do you feel like you're different from other people do you feel like uh, you know when people talk about you or blah 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 so they just ask these questions and this is kind of a little psychological thing and then they say oh yeah well like you know if people who who score highly on this thing they're five percent more likely to believe in conspiracy theories but you know that only kind of works on average and it's not really a really big significant thing and if you're looking at an individual you just got to ask why did this particular person fall down the rabbit hole and i spent a lot of time interviewing people trying to figure out 
you know, why all these individuals did. And invariably, the reason they did was something like YouTube. They watched videos that were compelling. You, know, you watch a, a video like, you know, New Pearl Harbor or Loose Change or, uh, you know, any, any video like that, Zeitgeist. Uh, and if you, you just, if you watch it at a point in your life when you're receptive to that type of thing, and if you do watch a couple of them in a row, you can just kind of get sucked in because it sounds very reasonable. If you look at, if you, if you didn't know anything about the 9-11 conspiracy theories and you just got uh, 9-11 in New Pearl Harbor and you watch that, it's quite compelling if you know nothing else. Mm. So someone watches that and they go, oh my God, I didn't know any of this. You know, the thing, this is absolutely incredible. This is mind blowing. This, this explains everything. And now I know. Now I have, you know, I figured it out. I've got to tell people about this. I've got to find more about it. I've got to try and stop it. They get all excited and they, you know, they feel special that they've, you know, got this information. And they straight straight away they go and watch another video, or they watch the same video again. And you watch a few more, and it takes you deeper into the rabbit hole. If you watch one, you watch another, and you watch something that's a bit more extreme even, and that takes you a little bit deeper. And you just get more and more sucked in by these videos, and. uh uh, eventually it kind of becomes this self-reinforcing thing people actually stay up all night watching videos because they enjoy watching them because it make they feel like they're uh they're getting information that nobody else knows they, they feel like it's really really important that mm-hmm. they get this information and it just it just sucks them in but i don't think there's anything particularly like psychological about them that's a major factor i think it can actually happen to anyone uh you know i'm sure you know people who are a bit eccentric yeah and some of them may believe in conspiracy theories and some of them not just because you're eccentric doesn't mean that you're going to believe in every conspiracy theory that's out there um most people who believe in conspiracy theories are just perfectly ordinary people mm-hmm. yeah there's lots of crazy people who go to football games hmm. uh it doesn't mean that yeah everyone who goes to a football game is a crazy person yeah that's true i mean um with the youtube sort of side of things i guess the suggestions page doesn't always help i mean it helps with channel growth and stuff like that but the main thing is sort of you watch one conspiracy 9-11 documentary or even sandy hook or whatever and then in the suggestion box or the next one that plays will be another conspiracy and then another conspiracy and you kind mm-hmm. of if one of them is 30 minutes and you've got four hours spare you've watched four of them of all this information and before you know it you're like oh my god it's a conspiracy because all exactly. these things don't add up. But yet people don't ever watch this conspiracy thing and then go, right, I want to try and debunk these or look for the debunk or whatever. As uh, Joe Rogan says, like the debunk isn't sexy, you know, no one wants that. <laughs> it's yeah. not, it's not sexy. Yeah. And the thing is like YouTube, the way YouTube is set up now is that YouTube is, has these algorithms where when you watch a video, uh, the algorithm is going to try to figure out what video would keep you watching. So it's actually trying to get you addicted. Hmm. So once you go a little bit in one direction, the algorithm thinks, oh, this is the type of thing this person wants to see. What are the most addictive videos I can show this person? Because you know, all, all this algorithm is doing, it's not, you know, it's not like trying to get you addicted for any nefarious purpose. It's trying to get you addicted so that you'll look at like, the adverts that come up on the bottom of the video or yeah. in between the videos. So they're just trying to make money. So they design these algorithms so that they keep you hooked in. So if you watch, yes, yeah, say 9-11 New Pearl Harbor, for example, 
it thinks, oh, I'll show him Zeitgeist next because uh, you know people who have watched 9/11 New Pearl Harbor tend to also watch this movie or give it thumbs up or whatever. And so it 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 just it kind of pulls you down the rabbit hole. It doesn't just allow you to fall down the rabbit hole. It's actually like YouTube is actually deliberately in its like blind robot artificial intelligence way is actually pulling you down the rabbit hole by getting you more and more addictive videos and getting you deeper and deeper into it. So what's your take on uh, false flag events? Because I know you also mentioned that in your book and I think um, Sandy Hook and like the Boston bombings and sort of other school shootings I've heard a lot of people um, talk about oh this is another false flag event because the government wants to take away our rights or or whatever like that yeah that's uh that's kind of a difficult one to deal with really because it's such an emotional one for a lot of people uh if you say like oh no one died at sandy hook then you know people quite quite understandably get upset uh there's there was a recent shooting here in america uh in a in a church and some false flag guy made it his mission to go and uh try to expose this as a false flag even though it wasn't and he actually went there and started harassing people. He he would stop. Like there was one woman whose uh, whose children had been killed in this church, and he was like stopping her in the car and telling her that it was all fake and that she was just an actor. And you know it's terrible. Uh, but the thing about the false flag things is they never pan out. If you look at the evidence, it never actually holds up to uh, to any kind of scrutiny. Uh, you always get the exact same types of things going on. Like, for example, you will always get the claim that there were more than one shooter. And that comes from basically the same thing. Every time, every single time this happens, uh, the police look for a second shooter because they don't know how many shooters there are. Just because, like, you know, someone calls uh, the police and says, you know, someone's shooting, they don't know how many people that is. It could be two people, it could be one person, it could be five people. So they always automatically look for a second shooter the media reports that the police is still looking for a second shooter and that just becomes this little legend that they, they start thinking that there's a second shooter. It happens all the time and there's always a conspiracy about it but this second shooter never never shows up. There's never any photos or any evidence or anything that actually shows him there. And this has happened since JFK. You know, In JFK, people thought there was a second shooter. Lots of people still do. Uh, and it's for the same type of reason because when uh, Kennedy was shot... No one knew how many shooters there were. He had no idea. All, was, all he heard was bang, bang, bang. And you know, they don't know where it was coming from. And they don't know, you know where, when he was shot, his you know, head exploded. But they didn't know whether he was shot from the front or the back because you know, they didn't have time. They obviously couldn't like you know, slow motion replay it at the time. So there's all yeah. this confusion at the start. They have no understanding of the, the people there. The police have no understanding of what actually happened. And it takes a while to piece it together. So in all these cases, you get these uh, incomplete stories that change. And that's another thing that they base the false flag things on. The stories will always change because you start out with a very chaotic situation. And you start out with the media repeating things that they've heard. And then you get this kind of Chinese whispers or telephone thing where people will say something and they'll tell somebody else there'll be a headline someone will repeat it and it, it just changes in the telling and it grows in the telling so people will say you know, they're looking for a second shooter and then they'll say oh, there is a second shooter so it just kind of grows because people are just you know, repeating it uh, but once things settle down you get the actual story of what actually happened 
all these things just fall away. You know, all these things that people say were evidence turn out not to be evidence. Like in the Boston bombing, uh, there was, you know, there was a tweet about an explosion that was going to happen. And someone posted it and it was timestamped before the bombing. And so that sounds like evidence, but then you look into it and they just looked at it from a different time zone. They looked at it from California instead of the East coast. And so it looked like it was earlier because it's in a different time zone. So these things, they just don't, they don't pan out. They don't actually, uh, the evidence never holds up. It always just falls away. And another thing is it doesn't make any sense. Like why would, (laughs) why would they have an entire village, the entire village of Newtown uh, of Sandy Hook, um, there's the whole surrounding area, Newtown and Sandy Hook. They'd have to, hundreds of people pretend that their children were, were killed to do what? Like nothing, nothing happened. Hmm. There was no, there was sales of guns increased. No new, uh, almost no new legislation was passed. You know, nothing was, nobody's guns got taken away. Nothing really happened. And it happens over and over again. Every single time, there's, there's like, you know, they say they're taking our guns away. Nothing happens. Um, it's, it's just, you know, people go crazy sometimes, and they shoot up a bunch of people, and they, um, that's, that's really all there is to it. People I mean, don't like that, though. They don't like the, that type, that simple explanation. They want yeah. a more uh, profound explanation. With, with, um, <clears throat> with that sort of situation as well, like, obviously, authority, like the police and whoever else is involved. They're kind of coming it from coming from uh, the most logical standpoint in this chaotic situation of like there was four or five shots coming off like the sounds we were hearing there from all over the place so there is one definite shooter there could be two or three um, you know this is just the logical way to look at it I guess and that then obviously oh, yeah. the media catches wind and says you know one shooter possibly two and then also you've got to think of people who are being interviewed you know 10 15 20 minutes after by the news they've just been in that chaotic situation and they're like oh well we think there was one or two shooters it was you know it's coming from everywhere shots were firing from everywhere and it's kind of mm-hmm. like in that traumatic situation obviously you know you, you're going with what your senses are telling you at the time you know the same as uh, anything i guess anything in any situation when when trauma is involved and chaos is involved you're going with what what the senses are telling you but everyone always goes to you know what sounds logical and what felt logical at the time until obviously the official story comes out at the end yeah and it's not like just the official story coming out and everybody's got to believe that mm. it's you know it just it kind of becomes clear from the available evidence what actually happened you get all the eyewitnesses and you kind of uh, correlate them and you know, cross-check them, and you look at like, like a map of the the area, and you know, like you know who was where and whatnot. Uh, and you know, I, I wouldn't tell people just be- wait for the official story and then believe that. Uh, but you know, look at the actual evidence that comes out. The uh, look specifically at the claims that were made early on when people say like, you know, this is very suspicious, and it turns out not to be suspicious. Like, you know, if you look at uh, one of the claims they make is that there are crisis actors that get uh, shared between these same events. So you say the same, you see the same woman uh, in in different situations. Like you'll see her at Sandy Hook, and then you'll see her in the Boston bombing, and you'll see her at uh, some other school shooting or whatever. But 
you know, they just base that on low resolution images like captured from video and things like that. And then if you actually look into it and track down the individual, you get like a higher resolution uh, version of the image, then you can see that it's not the same person. Because yeah. then they'll say that this person has had plastic surgery in between, which is just, you know, it's just getting ridiculous. It's just they're trying to invent possibilities you might as well say that, that this person is a robot or this person is a shape-shifting alien it makes mm. as much sense like people having plastic surgery so they can pretend that children were killed makes no sense whatsoever and there's no evidence for it yeah i mean with that as well obviously there's a point where you have to say this is just ludicrous now like you're just forcing the conspiracy on yourself like you, you know where do you draw the line it's like come on yeah. you know they're you're, you're talking shit now basically it's like that it like you said obviously low low images and then you expose that it's not it's an individual different person they're like well plastic surgery's got abused it's like yeah we could go down this this route forever you know with yeah but yeah but yeah but there gets to a point where you have to realize you know that you're going too far here because there, there's always a a um you know an answer to everything in the sense of like a, a conspiracy you know you could say this wasn't found here because of this and then aliens put it there or whatever <laughs> Do you know what i mean it can go exactly exactly go on for yeah and, and like you know with the false flag thing something people often bring up is that they say you know you ask them why would the government do this why would the government take take a risk on doing this and then they'll say oh they've done it before and then you ask them like where they've done it before and they'll bring up usually two things there's uh, operation northwoods and the gulf of tonkin yeah uh which are you know two real things in in history that but they're they're also radically different to uh what actually happened like people often compare operation northwoods to 9/11 as uh, operation northwoods was basically uh the chiefs of staff of uh, the military back then wanted to get uh, a possible pretext for invading Cuba. This was back in the 1960s, uh, 62, I think. And uh, so they they asked somebody to come up with a list of excuses they could use to invade Cuba. And this person went away and he came up with a bunch of uh, things that could be done to create excuses for invading Cuba. And one of them was like pretending that uh, a plane had been hijacked uh, or pretending that a plane had been shot down mm. or um, simulating an attack on Guantanamo Bay. Uh, so there was this list of uh, uh, possible things that they could do. The thing is, they never did any of them. They, they made the list. They looked at it and then they decided not to do it because <laughs> no one knows exactly why they decided not to do it, but probably because it was a stupid idea. Yeah. Uh, if they if they got caught doing this, it would be you know pretty pretty bad. They would look very very bad. Mm. The you know they want they wanted to invade Cuba, but they wanted to do it without the with with uh, justification, uh, so it wouldn't start World War Three. But it was a ridiculous idea, and that's why they didn't do it, because it doesn't make any sense. The risk of actually carrying out these things was far greater than the potential reward. Uh, if they wanted to invade Cuba, they could have probably just have waited a little while. And what happened next was uh, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. The Russians put nuclear missiles on Cuba, hmm. uh, which nearly did start World War Three, and everybody nearly died. 
but the, the, the US still didn't invade Cuba because really they didn't want to invade Cuba because it would have started this terrible conflict. So all you have with Northwoods is this list of possible ideas, which shows that they were prepared to consider ideas very briefly, but then they realized that it was a bad idea and they didn't do it. I think that's one the other thing, thing that um, right, one thing that people maybe that's why conspiracy theorists kind of use that as an example is to show that the government is capable of thinking about these ideas and maybe mm -hmm. implementing them for their own gain or to go to war in a country for 10 years like Afghanistan and Iraq. But yeah, in the same sense as like you can't use past events to kind of prove that there's there's no evidence you know what i mean there's no like okay well, you, just because you can to a degree yeah you can to a degree use fast past events uh but you know it's it's more than nothing mm. you know if if they've never done it then that's more significant than them than having doing it in the past and you know not doing it now yeah but you know, really they they haven't done it if you compare 9-11 like in 9-11 uh 3,000 people 3,000 american people died uh, that's an insanely significant event. Yeah. And what they're suggesting is that the U.S. government faked it to give them an excuse to uh, promote their Middle East agenda. And yeah, it's just it makes no sense because the risk of getting caught just so greatly outweighs any possible benefit they could possibly gain from this. And the risks of getting caught in this type of operation are just huge. You know, they have to get the planes to fly into the buildings in the right spot. They have to get the bombs to go off at the right time, down to the microsecond, apparently, according to uh, architects and engineers. You know, boom, 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 went off exactly the right time, all perfectly flawless, no problem whatsoever. You have to have the other uh, building, like, rig for explosives and then blow up. And you have to have all this leave no evidence whatsoever. Then you have to have the entire FBI, the entire FBI investigating this uh, for five years and not find anything, mm. or everybody in the FBI is part of the conspiracy. You know, how, how, how is it, it going to work? How does this possibly, how does this even work? You compare it to something like Operation Northwoods, they were suggesting things like, oh, we'll let a few bombs off in, uh, in Miami in the Cuban area, or we'll let some bombs off in, uh, uh, in Washington. You know, they're not going to kill thousands of people. They're just going to pretend that there's some terrorist activity. It's a completely different scale of things. And they didn't think that Northwoods was worth doing. Yeah. Why would they think that it's worth taking that risk on 9-11, killing thousands of people, uh, causing billions of dollars of damage and you know the risk of getting caught is just so huge the risk you know if, if the people found out that the american government was killing its own citizens mm. you know, do you think it would just be the ruin of everything I why would they risk it why didn't they just fabricate like some evidence of something and then invade <laughs> Iraq, which is what they ended up doing yeah which is that that's the um the point in the end is when you really think about it is they didn't need to do this big catastrophic event to go in and do that. They could have easily used something a lot smaller or whatever and just They could have said, made something up. Yeah. Well they, they did just, with the yeah. weapons of mass destruction or whatever. Exactly. They 
they they fabricated the evidence for that essentially, or they greatly, you know, boosted the evidence for uh, uh, the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and uh, and then they went in and invaded a country and sort of removed a leader. That you know they don't have any problem doing that. They didn't need nine eleven to do that. They could just you know they could have set off a bomb somewhere and said you know that's they didn't, they didn't need to kill thousands of people and they didn't need to do it in such a ridiculously risky way of like hijacking planes and uh, uh, having them fly into buildings at a precise point that's just insanely risky there's no way you could do that without uh, you know a significant risk of it going wrong it's almost guaranteed to go wrong you know it's, the way it turned out is pretty chaotic and random as it was but mm. you know there's no way you could do you could pull it off but I think people just lose sight of that. They're not really looking at just how plausible it is. And that's why I think people should look at things like Operation Northwoods and uh, the Gulf of Tonkin incident just to get some historical context as to you know, the actual types of things that the government is capable of in terms of uh, false flags and deception. What if you look the... at uh, Tonkin, yeah, I was say, Tonkin, was, was Tonkin was an incident just before uh, the Vietnam War. Just before the U.S. like you know started like full-scale military operations in Vietnam, uh, the Gulf of Tonkin is just an area of uh, of the ocean uh, near North Vietnam, off the coast. And there's there was this uh, American ship there, and uh, it was attacked one day by a, a very small boat that just fired a few shots at it and then and sped off. And uh, at the time, the American government elements within the American government were really itching to uh to go into vietnam uh the secretary of, secretary of defense robert mcnamara at the time he was really wanting to go into vietnam so he thought he would use this as as you know like evidence that the north vietnamese were attacking uh so they would attack uh vietnam but uh it really wasn't enough it was just this small boat attacking them so uh the next day the boat was in the same region uh McNamara was probably hoping it would get attacked, attacked again, so that would be enough of an excuse. And there was a report that it was attacked. And they started getting reports that these torpedo boats were attacking the, uh, the, 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 the fleet. There was just two ships there. And uh, you know, there was a big attack going on, and so uh, McNamara told the president that this attack was happening. The president told Congress that they were being attacked, and they basically declared war on Vietnam, and that's how the Vietnam War started. Uh, but what happened was it turned out that that second attack was not real. The first attack was real. The second attack was just a mistake. Like the radar operators thought they'd seen these torpedo boats on the radar and they thought they'd heard over the radio that they were going to be attacked. But there wasn't actually an attack. It was just, you know, there were just some, they were, it was in the middle of the night. It was dark. They ended up shooting at some ripples on the ocean. Uh, and, you know, then someone's shooting and <laughs> someone else thinks that it's them, there's the enemy shooting. It was this big confusion, this big cluster uh, of confusion. And uh, it was resolved on their end in like eight hours. But by then, they'd already uh, done the damage. They'd already essentially declared war on North Vietnam. They'd started full military operations. They'd bombed uh, some of their refineries. And that was the start of the Vietnam War. Uh, now, what had happened was uh, McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, had not really told the president that it might not be a real attack. He'd got information coming in that it wasn't really a real attack, that they think it was probably just radar returns. But he delayed telling uh, the president, President Johnson, uh, that this, this was what was happening. And so Johnson kind of went down the road 
of being an aggressor and ordering this attack uh, on North Vietnam. And the Vietnam War started, and by the time they got into it, they couldn't get out of it, even if it was uh, yeah, found to be a fake attack. So similar to the uh, Iraq situation, you know, in Iraq they needed evidence to invade Iraq. So they, every time they got something that looked a little bit like a weapon of mass destruction, they said, oh, this is a biological weapons lab or, you know, we found some centrifuges or something. You know, they would, they would boost it and pretend it was really significant. And then uh, they ended up invading Iraq. And it's the same type of thing with North Vietnam. So these things do happen. There, there is uh, deception and misleading and uh, manipulation coming from high levels of government. Uh, but no, we don't have them killing 3,000 American citizens. They don't need to. Mm. What are your core techniques for debunking that you use? Well, yeah, the first thing to do is to listen to the other person and try to understand where they're coming from. Uh, yeah, I think people very often, like when they hear someone uh, say they believe in a conspiracy theory, they automatically start to kind of laugh at them or they reject it or they just think that they're being silly or yeah, they, they don't they don't stop and listen to the reasons why the person believes in these things. And you've really got to do that. You've really got to take some time, uh, see, you know, wh why does this person think that this thing has happened? You don't just immediately say, oh, that's ridiculous. Like if someone says, like, you know, I believe in chemtrails, you ask them why. Don't just straight away say, oh, they're just contrails. That's ridiculous. You know, ask them, well, why do you believe in contrails? And then they'll say, well, I... I see them in the sky all the time and then you ask them why why do you you know why do you think that this is a problem and then might say oh it looks looks bad mm. you know it's like poison he's poisoning the sky and uh, one thing you can do is uh, agree with them if they have a genuine concern now someone who looks up in the sky and they see these white lines going across the sky spreading out covering the sky they could actually have a genuine con a concern there that uh uh, planes are polluting the sky because that's something that does actually happen planes are actually uh, plane exhaust is actually a pollutant it's carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide and you know all kinds of uh, little chemicals just like car exhaust you get uh, you get pollutants coming out of planes and the contrails do actually cloud up the sky and they block the sun to a certain degree it actually can end up uh, cooling down uh, the earth a little bit during the day and warming it up during the night. So there, there are actually genuine concerns. So as well as understanding where someone is coming from, you really want to try to find uh, what their core concerns are that are real. You know, if they are concerned about contrails, uh, chemtrails, you know, they are actually really concerned about contrails, but they think that they are chemtrails. So you can validate their genuine concerns before you start addressing the ones that are actually false. Um, but you know, by far the most important thing in debunking is to maintain effective communication. I don't um, don't call people stupid. Be polite. Uh, don't make fun of them. Uh, don't get angry at them. Because uh, if you start uh, bringing emotion into these uh, discussions, it very quickly can turn bad. Like the person, if you start mocking people or getting frustrated at somebody, then they can get angry at you for mocking them or they can get angry in turn at your frustration that you're not understanding what they're saying. And it can become this adversarial relationship very quickly. You can, uh, they can, they will push back. There's a thing called the, 
the backfire effect, where if you explain to someone why they are wrong, it can actually backfire and they'll end up believing it even more. And that's because you didn't do it right. It's basically if you do it in a way, say, oh, that's just stupid. Of course, the contrails. Uh, or, you know, that's insane. Only a crazy person will believe that. Like if you say something like that, you know, they're just going to react against it and then they'll just they'll get angry at you and then they'll just think you're being you, either you're being stupid or you're being an idiot or you're a, you're a government shill. So you've got to try to communicate effectively with people and which you do by listening to them, uh, seeing what their genuine concerns are and looking at the specific evidence that they think is uh, behind their case. Uh, and one of the most important things to do is to give it sufficient time. Uh, people kind of think that if someone has a false belief, then all you have to do is explain to them why that belief is false, and then that's it. Hmm. I kind of thought this when I started debunking chemtrails uh, like 10 years ago. I thought, oh, I'll just explain why contrails can persist, and you know, then it will be explained, and then we won't have chemtrails conspiracy theories anymore. But it doesn't, doesn't work on the internet, and it doesn't even work for individuals. Like you can tell someone... Uh, you know, contrails normally persist. Um, high bypass jet engines actually make more contrails than the older ones. So you can tell people these things, but they they quite often they don't stick. It takes a while to, for people to accept that what you are saying has some validity. And you know, often you have to go like a little bit at a time. You could give them like you know all ten reasons why contrails are nonsense, but you might want to just start with you know one simple one. Uh, you know, contrails can actually persist and they don't immediately fade away when they come out of the back of a plane. And if you can get that across to people, then you can move on to something else. But you might not, you might have to wait a few days or weeks for them to come around to it, and it might take even longer. Mm. Uh, some people have their friends discussing conspiracy theories, and it can take months or years before they actually gain enough perspective for them to. Um, escape the rabbit hole i think with um with sort of the whole spray in the air thing is and they're poison everyone is the people that are paying for the spraying are also poisoning themselves like they've got a liver as well do you know what i mean so they're also exactly yeah fuck it, fucking themselves unless you believe they're part of some reptilian hybrid race or whatever but they've still well, got some people on the do planet. yeah I mean, yeah and that's that's similar to what I was saying before with the, uh, you know, the 9/11 conspiracy theory. You know, why would they do this? Mm. When you actually think about just how the scale of it, and the what what are they benefiting from it, and what's the risk of getting caught? Now, if you look at uh, people like um, Dane Wigington of GeoengineeringWatch.org, he'll say that the planet is being ruled by a bunch of psychopaths who are desperately trying to cling on to the last vestiges of power before uh, there's an apocalyptic collapse of the Earth's ecosystem and uh, civilization descends into chaos, which uh, is apparently just right around the corner and has been for uh, quite a while. It doesn't really make any sense. You know, why are they spraying these chemicals in the air? It, uh, <laughs> it, it's... And when you look at the actual full scope of the conspiracy, it's 
pretty out there. It's pretty. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't want to use the word crazy, but you know, the it it doesn't really make sense what's actually going on. And you, you could look at it also, obviously, from the scientific point of view. Scientific point of view, it doesn't really make any sense. But uh, they're not often arguing from a purely scientific point of view. They're arguing from like, you know, this is what the the elite would be doing. This is what the elite is doing because they're trying to maintain control or whatever. Uh, so, you know, you kind of, I think you need to bring perspective. People believe in conspiracy theories. They believe in the false conspiracy theories because they have a limited set of information. They're, they're missing uh, an understanding of a variety of things. Sometimes it's science. Sometimes it's just, you know, the way the world works. Uh, there's a, a journalist called Abby Martin uh, who used to be on uh, RT, which is the old uh, Russia Today Mm. Uh, channel. She was a, a journalist. She runs uh, a series called Empire Files now, which is a separate thing. And uh, she used to be a 9/11 truther, and she was like, you know, full into it. She was saying, "Oh, Building Seven, yeah, looks exactly like a controlled demolition. Uh, you know, watch loose change, watch uh, New Pearl, New Pearl Harbor." And she was like totally convinced. She she was 100% thought it was blatantly obvious that. Uh, yeah, it was a controlled demolition, and then anybody who believed otherwise was being stupid. And then there's this this huge media brainwashing thing going on, trying to make us believe otherwise. But now she's not a 9/11 truther. And what happened between her being one and not being one was that she got a job at RT, uh, interviewing people, and then she moved to Washington, I think, to be part of the RT team in Washington, covering politics. So she gained a large amount of perspective on how the world works. She interviewed a lot of people who were who did things in the world, who you know were in in politics or in industry or in the media. So she interviewed a lot of people, and she uh, you know saw uh, the world more for what it really was. And she was in Washington, so she could cover uh, the politicians and what they were doing in Washington. And she could see like you know the, a plot like the nine eleven plot was just completely ridiculous. And she would have seen that from talking to people who you know, understood how government works. So you know, now she's moved away from 9-11 conspiracy theories and she has more, more general kind of, you know, America is an evil empire uh, type conspiracy theory. But, you know, she, she's, she, she gained perspective. She, she was missing that perspective before. She was just, you know, like a college journalist uh, living on the West Coast and whose social group uh, a large chunk of it were other 9-11 truthers and so she had this kind of limited bubble in which she lived and it, it, when she actually got out of that bubble and talked to uh, people who knew what was actually going on in the world and, and what was even going on in secret and she realized that you know the, the 9-11 controlled demolition thing made no sense at all and she uh, moved on yeah I mean that was kind of gonna that's answered the next question I was going to ask you was quite, like how do people uh, escape the rabbit hole and obviously like you've said there about kind of broadening your perspective of the mm -hmm. world and, and kind of not distancing yourself necessarily but moving away from that bubble of conspiracy 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 and trying to understand a little bit more how the world works and how complicated things would be to you know do these conspiracies etc etc are there any conspiracies you do kind of believe or think they're a little bit iffy? Well, uh, 
you know, I, I kind of put things on a spectrum. Uh, it's got to be one. A one, to, <laughs> a one to ten spectrum. <laughs> uh, and there are there are conspiracies that I think that pretty much everybody believes, like uh, the conspiracy that the the pharmaceutical industry, like the drug industry, is uh, promoting diseases that. Uh, don't really exist or don't have a good scientific basis for their existence mm. just so they can sell drugs which you know it seems like you know it's fairly obvious that they would do things like that yeah. uh if like we've got things like um like social anxiety disorder mm. which is people who are shy at parties which now they have a drug to treat that and so they're promoting social anxiety disorder, and they they want people to self self diagnose with having social anxiety disorder, uh, so they'll buy their drugs. So they put these commercials on TV. I don't know if you have drug commercials in England, but in America they, they you know they have these commercials saying like you know do you are you shy at parties? Like, and then then they share them taking the drug, and then they uh, they're all of a sudden they're the life and soul of the party, and they're having a good time, and they're talking to hot chicks. Uh, and you know, it's, I, I would say like there is a conspiracy, if not like a overt one, like kind of a tacit one to misrepresent, uh, what people need in terms of drugs. Like they're selling things that people don't actually need. Yeah. There's a huge problem in America with, uh, Oxycontin, uh, which is a, uh, painkiller, yeah. but it's very similar to heroin. And so people get addicted to it and the drug industry was supplying it and they were trying to get doctors to prescribe it. And, you know, some people in the industry were trying to make lots of money from it. And so they pushed it and then they turned a blind eye. Uh, there was one town in uh, some state, Wisconsin or somewhere, and that town was getting enough pills so that everybody in the town could have 100 pills of OxyContin every day. And this was supposedly doctors filling their prescriptions. Yeah. So, you know, someone knew what was going on. There was you know, some kind of conspiracy going on. So, yeah, I believe that, you know, obviously that's a very low-level conspiracy. And you get further along, like, you know, were there conspiracies around 9-11? Mm. Maybe, maybe Bush knew in advance that uh, there was going to be some kind of terrorist attack but didn't know exactly what it was and thought, like, oh, yeah, it'll just be like a little bombing or something and we'll let it happen. I don't know. Yeah. That's plausible. That's, I don't see evidence that that happened, but that's a plausible type of thing that you could see. Like, you know, people did want to have essentially a new new Pearl Harbor so they could reshape American foreign policy. Mm. So when it actually happened, they were like, uh, I wouldn't say they were happier that all these people died, but once it had happened, they seized that opportunity to yeah. to use it. Uh, I don't think there's a that's a conspiracy in itself, but it's it kind of is in a way because they're exploiting the event. Mm. Yeah, I, mean, I don't think they did. With the uh, with the pharmaceutical industry, yeah, I, I agree with you. It's like uh, it's it's a massive problem. I mean, here here in England, we're having a lot of people that are suffering with anxieties and depressions, etc. And sort of medications always the first thing that's kind of forced on people or down their throats, rather than looking for external problems or people may just be unhappy in their jobs or just growing up yeah. you know like you're not the same person as you was 10 years ago i was a massive party animal and now i'm kind of right more at a party i'll take a back seat and chill out does that mean i'm socially anxious like should i be taking yeah. pills you know 
and I, I wouldn't want to say like you know people shouldn't be taking pills. Mm. Uh, obviously, like you know, a lot of people get a lot of benefit from a variety of medications, and yeah. you know there probably are some people who do have extreme social anxiety disorder who could actually benefit from uh, uh, some kind of medication, yeah, tranquilizer yeah. or well, whatever it is that they do, and and there are diseases like uh, attention deficit hyperactive disorder, which are actually real conditions. Yeah, you know, maybe they're being over uh, uh, over diagnosed. Mm. You know, maybe maybe they're they're using too many drugs when they could use uh, some kind of uh, therapy instead. But um, you know, I think you know there's a real yeah. And oxycontin is a great painkiller. Yeah, <laughs> it just it tends to get you addicted. That's the the problem. And uh, there's no good mechanism in place of stopping people getting addicted. So. It became this huge, huge, huge issue. There's millions of, uh, of addicts in America right now, and uh, many deaths uh, every day from yeah. it. Yeah, I mean that's that's what I mean. It's kind of like obviously there are genuine needs out there, but for say, you know, the oxy, it's, it's oxycontin, isn't it? I think. Yeah. Yeah. So with that, obviously, it's being overprescribed, like you said, when there could have been, you know, someone may have like a little minor issue and someone's got a massive issue and they're prescribing to both people because you know they want to make fucking profit from it or whatever you know when that one the person with the minor issue it could have been resolved in a different way but yet now here they are hooked on this drug because obviously it's highly addictive and that's mm -hmm. i suppose where the issue comes from um you know and and the pharmaceutical industry there's there's loads of conspiracies around it you know with like uh, cancer um, people say, you know, there's cures to cancer, but the pharmaceutical industry doesn't want you to know about it. Or That makes no sense to me. Uh, yeah. And it, I don't think it would make sense to anybody who's had a friend or a loved one or a relative die of cancer. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. the most horrible thing imaginable. And people within the pharmaceutical industry, uh, they have, you know, friends and family and loved ones. And if there was a cure for cancer, they, <laughs> they would bring it out. Yeah. yeah. The pharmaceutical industry, sure, they want to make money. But you know, they're made of people, uh, yeah. people who have uh, children, people who have you know, mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and friends and, uh, and, and loved ones. And if there was a cure for cancer, it would be the most amazing thing ever. And it would not be hidden. The, the idea that they would hide a cure for cancer is just it's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, I think um, I mean, there's. A couple of documentaries I watched to do with like cannabis and the benefits it can have for people that are suffering with cancer, which is why I think some states in America have uh, looked looked at. I, I know there's medicinal benefits of of cannabis, mm -hmm. and uh, that's kind of the main um, one that people sort of go to because in England, obviously, it's illegal, and people are like, well, why can't they? Uh, why can't they use it? why can't we use it here for medicinal purposes and i've seen a few i'm part of a uh, i was part of a group on facebook i'm not on there anymore but it had like sixteen thousand people on there and they were curing their cancer with cannabis people with sort of stage four and blah 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 but obviously they say they were using cannabis but they were also exercising as much as they could reducing all the acidities in their in, in their body by mm -hmm. having a high alkaline diet as well as probably having treatment from the NHS and stuff as well. So yeah, there's there's like a little uh, statistical thing with that as well. Uh, like you know, people people uh, with cancer treat their disease with uh, an alternative medicine, and then they survive. Uh, they'll tell you about it, but if they 
treat their disease with an alternative medicine and then die, <laughs> then they don't tell you about it because yeah. they're dead. Exactly. So you tend to hear from the ones who survived, which doesn't mean that it's, they survived because they took this, this alternative medicine. It just means they are the ones that survived. Yeah. And is the survival rate higher or lower That's with, the thing. Uh, with this alternative of... rate and versus uh, uh, conventional medicine? I think that's it. Like, there's a lot of uh, statistics and and things that aren't there yet to back up statements. But I think with a thing such as cancer, obviously, it's close to a lot of people's hearts, and you know, people yeah. have had family members and everything that that have been diagnosed, or whatever. I think that you should try everything. You know, if if people are saying cannabis has worked for them, fuck it, give that a go. But also look at other, look at the main thing, which is there look at the mate the statistics and go okay this is more successful so therefore this is going to be the better treatment rather than sort of relying on on just the alternative route yeah yeah the the, the problem with alternative medicine is when people uh, take it instead of conventional medicine mm. uh, generally uh, alternative medicine a lot of it is uh, pretty harmless uh, there's some alternative treatments though that are actually can not make things worse exactly, but they can make your quality of life life worth worse. Uh, I heard of tales of some distant relatives who would uh, use scalding baths as a way of treating cancer. Hmm. So they would heat water up till it was nearly boiling, like, uh, and then put the person in this bath until they screamed, and then took them out again. Yeah. which you know did there's no evidence it worked it was just kind of an old wife's tale and this person went through all this this horrible pain for nothing yeah. so you know sometimes alternative treatments uh can make things worse obviously you know people are want to try whatever they can there and it's you know it's, it's hard to say you know you can't do it but uh, there are reasons why we have limits on on medicine because there are unscrupulous people who will try to sell you something uh, and they're not really trying to, to cure you; they're just trying to sell you something. Yeah, profit basically. But um, mm -hmm. we've been going for for an hour and twenty five. I've got one more question All for right. you. Um, how do you deal with being called a shill? <laughs> that was my last <laughs> question. Does it bother you at all, or do you just? It, well, on? no, it doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me because I'm used to it now. Uh, I was a bit surprised at first uh, when people said like I'm a shill. Like you know, one woman told me that she thought I was gaslighting her because she was becoming convinced that I was right. So, you know, she thought uh, I must be hypnotizing her somehow. So, yeah. But no, I, I don't. Uh, I don't. It doesn't bother me now. And, you know, I just try to use it as an, a, a conversation point. I, why do you think I'm a shill? What evidence do you have that I'm a shill? And if I was to tell you these things, you know, would you think I'm a shill or not? You know, I tell people that I'm, I made a lot of money doing the Tony Hawk video game. Uh, and once they understand that, you know, I, I'm, I'm retired and I don't, don't need to get my shill bucks uh, then you know, I think it it let, it gives them a, a new perspective. So I just try to tell people about myself, and uh, you know, let them Before let them see them, me yeah. for who I really am. Yeah, nah. But it's been a pleasure as always. Um, I'll talk to you off yeah. camera for a couple of minutes, anyways, just to review how it went. If you're cool with that, and um, I'll also oh. post your link to your video, uh, your video, your book. For Amazon, which is I think available for pre-order. Yeah. Right? Escaping the rabbit hole. Is there a website they can get that from, or do you mind if they go to Amazon for that? Uh, no, Amazon's fine. Yeah. Cool. Uh, or if you just Google it, it will come up. Or go to mickwest.com. 
or so, metabunk.org. <laughs> yeah, I'll have all those links below. Rabbithole.org. Yeah, I'll get all those uh, all those links uh, down below. But yeah, as always, uh, it's been a pleasure, and I'll, I'll chat to you off cam. Cool. Great. Thanks. All right.